Lord, I pray today that, Lord, you would help us understand what you've done for us. Lord, that our finite minds could comprehend the reality of you coming to this earth, joining humanity, bone of your bone, flesh of our flesh. You became men and women. That your time at the cross was our time at the cross. That your resurrection is our resurrection. Lord, help us get that today. Lord, help us understand that. And Lord, help us live that out. In the mighty, mighty name of Jesus. (laughs) Amen. Amen. Well, happy Easter. I felt like I heard some some people saying happy Easter back. That was kind of awesome. If you have your Bibles today, we're going to be looking. Our main text uh, is John chapter 17, verses 20 through 25. And this is Jesus, really his final prayer that he prays for us and for mankind with his father before he goes into the garden and is betrayed by Judas and handed over to be punished for our sin. And I want to focus on the last part of the prayer from verse Chapter 17, verse 20 through 25. Jesus says, I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. So Jesus is praying for his disciples. He's praying for us. And he's praying for those who will become his disciples. I'm encouraged when Jesus is praying for me. What is he praying? This is, this is the heart of his prayer. This shows you what is on his mind before he goes to the cross. This shows you his purpose in coming to the earth. This is a powerful prayer. It reveals a lot about who our Savior is and what was on his heart and his mind. And not just our Savior. It reveals because Jesus is one in the Father, one in the Holy Spirit. So it is the heart of God. He says, I pray, verse 21, That they will be one, just as you and I are one. Now, that's a crazy prayer. That's something that is, that he's, I'm praying today that we really understand and get. I pray that this prayer would be answered in a more powerful way than ever before. He's praying that we will be just like the Father and Son are one. Now, that is, that's a foundational doctrinal truth that, there's a, the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are one. And there's, there's no other oneness to describe that you can have three personal beings and they're one. He is praying that we would be one with divinity, one with the Father, one with the Son, one with the Holy Spirit. This is, this is amazing. It, this, this is, it's, it's radical. <laughs> I can't think of a, a word good enough to describe what this is. He goes on. And he says, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. So he makes this very clear. It's very specific. He's not just being uh, poetic. He's being literally, I, I'm praying, Father, that just as you are in me, Father, and I am in you, and may they be in us. So it's not just in Christ. We see that Jesus lives in us, but it's through the agency of the Holy Spirit. And the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, he's saying, and he understands what he's saying, that all three, the, the Godhead, would be in us. That's radical. And I hope it doesn't mess with some, some it might, but praise the Lord. This is Jesus' prayer, and, he, and, and it's being accomplished. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you, and may they be in us. And what's the purpose of it? His purpose of this is so that the world will believe that you sent me. The purpose of our oneness that he's praying for is so that the world will believe. That's on his heart. That those who are far off, those who don't know him, will believe. Those in our lifetime that don't believe would know him. That's the purpose of this oneness that we're going to get into. Verse 22. I have given them the glory you gave me. So they may be one as we are one. This isn't confusion. 
Verse 23, I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world, once again, what's on his heart, that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them. Now, this is crazy. That they would know, that we would know that he loves us as much as he loves him. That the world would know, that we would know. Church, it's not just that the world would know. The church needs to know that he loves us as much as the Father loves the Son. He loves us. Verse 24, Father, I want these whom you have given me to be with me where I am. Now, we read a cup last week in the, the narrow and the wide gate that, that he said, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust also in God. Believe in me that where I go, I prepare a place for you. This was on Jesus's heart, that we will be with him, not just in spirit, but in actual presence, that we will be with him where he is. And one of these days, church, that's going to happen. I want these whom you've given me to be with me where I am. Then they can see all the glory you gave me because you loved me even before the world began. And he loved you, church, even before the world began. Oh, righteous Father, the world doesn't know you, but I do. And these disciples know that you sent me. I have revealed you to them, and I will continue to do so. Then your love for me will be in them, and I will be in them. He said, I have revealed you to them, and I will continue to do so. Then your love for me will be in them, and I will be in them. The Holy Spirit is continuing to do so today as the Spirit of Christ, still revealing to us his love for us. It's amazing. My first point. In the title of the message, that would probably be important if you guys were wondering what the title is. You might want to know that. It's oneness in life, oneness in death, and resurrection. Oneness in life, oneness in death, oneness in resurrection. This is Christ's prayer, and it's about to be fulfilled. Oneness in life, oneness in death, oneness in resurrection. So the first point is, how does God become one with man? How does God become one how do we get, acquire oneness in life? Well, the answer is Jesus, the incarnation. Now, let's look at that. Now, this, I'm going to paint a story all the way from Jesus coming into the earth. Uh, when, when God, not just Jesus, but God incarnated into man. Is God with us? Emmanuel, that's what the angel's saying. And that's what the, Emmanuel, God with us. Now, why is that important? Because the whole purpose of why he came into the earth is, is resurrection. It's the whole purpose that we would be one. So God had to unite himself with mankind. Now that, if you, when you study that out, it's called the hyperstatic union. The, the union of God and the union of man. And I want this to be clear. There's all kinds of thoughts on this. And just church, bear with me. Anytime we, um, you see doctrinal error in the church and outside the church, it's because some core truths have been left in order to try to make sense of our own human uh, minds so that we can uh, understand what's going on. <laughs> I'm you... Praise the Lord. Lord, if there's any time that a message needs to be heard, you know it's right now. God, I ask that you fix whatever's going on, Lord, that you give wisdom, Lord, to who needs wisdom to be able to turn off other instruments or whatever's going on that would cause this um, internet contact to not work. Lord, we thank you for your oneness. Lord, we thank you that you've given us the mind of Christ. We have your mind. So Holy Spirit, activate that right now, Lord, so that we could be able to solve these problems and this message would be able to get out. In Jesus' mighty name, Lord, I do believe if you conquered death, hell, and the grave, you can conquer this issue. Amen. All right. I'm going to explain the hyperstatic union. When there, when there is error and there's, there's problems that arise from um, doctrinal errors, it's usually because we leave the, the solid truths of the, the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, 
And we are seeing these things happen now with the hyperstatic union that, um, well, God, Jesus was able to do these things, but he didn't do them. You know, he just did them in his own strength or he's emptied himself completely of being God. And these things are not so. Jesus was 100% man and is 100% God. And we're, man is always trying to figure out ways to, to make that make sense to us. And I get that, but we can't ever make it make sense not realizing that he was never not 100% God and never not 100% man. And in him being 100% God meant that he was still 100% Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You can't separate them out either, even though they are individuals. Now, if you could really wrap your head around all that, then teach me. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to encourage you and explain what it looks like, God becoming man and the purpose of that. This is the new act of eternal God, where God himself becomes a man without ceasing to be God. The creator becomes creature without ceasing to be creator. The supernatural becomes natural without ceasing to be supernatural. The eternal becomes time without ceasing to be eternal. Now that's some radical stuff. God is, we know in God is omnipotent. He's all powerful. He's everywhere at once. He's before time. He's alpha. He's omega. He's before time. He's after time. He's beginning. He's end. But in the form of Jesus, he is time. He becomes time because Jesus is a literal person on a planet bound by the same things that we are, but yet he is unbound. God himself becomes man. The creator of the universe becomes a creature. The supernatural becomes natural, but without ceasing to be supernatural. The eternal God becomes time without ceasing to be eternal. This is an even truly more astounding act than the act of creation of the universe out of nothing. For in the incarnation, the almighty living God becomes little without ceasing to be the mighty, omnipotent, eternal God. It is not one or the other. It is both. The self-humbling, and I use this word specifically. It's a, I think it's the most, uh, there's some really fancy words that I'd have to give you definitions on, or I can explain it and where I think you can understand it. God humbles himself. He doesn't empty, he's not emptied but he humbles himself. The self-humbling of God in Christ does not mean that, the, that there's a self-limitation of God or the curtailment of his power, but the staggering exercise of his power within the limitations of our contingent existence of space and time. Thus, in it, the omnipotent sovereign Lord God is revealed to have the inconceivable power of becoming little and contingent while remaining what he eternally and almighty is. Now that's a mouthful, I know, but bear with me. Why, why am I sharing that and why is that important? Because, church, the whole man, all of man, the whole man had to be assumed by Christ if the whole man was to be saved. Hear me. The whole man... All of man, every part of man, had to be assumed by God. God had to assume every part of man if the whole man was to be saved. If, if, why I'm saying that is if the whole man, if God was just partial, partial man, he wasn't like the full, complete man like one of us, then it would only be a partial payment paid. He had to be full man, 100% in order to pay and redeem mankind. Amen? Amen. The incarnation was the coming of God to save us. The whole point of God coming to the earth. This isn't an angry father mad at the earth because there's been sin. And then he gets Jesus and says, well, what do you think? Um, there needs to be a, a, a sacrifice. And if you can go down there and take care of this for me. They are in unity together in love with mankind, knowing that because of Adam, there was a separation between man and God. 
And God did not design that. What we see in the garden was God's original intent of, of fellowship with us, to, have, to be one with us. And Adam sinned and destroyed that. So God, knowing, and it says the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world. This wasn't an afterthought. God was in unity, in agreement from the beginning to come. And God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit to take on human flesh and join in man. So that man could be saved. So that we could be redeemed. The incarnation was the coming of God to save us in the heart of our fallen and depraved humanity. He came to save us in the heart of our depraved, fallen humanity, where humanity is at its wickedest in its enmity and depravity. Where we were at our wickedness of hatred and running from God and sinning against God. God comes in to mankind to take that on, to save us from that. From the wickedness and from the violence against the reconciling love of God. We were violently opposed to the reconciling love of God before Christ. There's a violence that comes against, coming against that kind of a love. That love that God would come and put on flesh and blood and put on bone and be bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh and take on our humanity and our weaknesses and our wickedness and our evilness and all those things. And then if we were opposing that, well, that's a violent thing to oppose that kind of love. And someday, after we're not here, or those who are, are in, in Christ are going to see what that opposing that love looks like. We talked about that last week, the narrow and the wide gate. God took upon himself our fallen human nature. God took it upon himself. Now, this is, this is good news. He took it upon himself. God, the infallible, sinless, spotless, as John said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We just, we just went through Passover and, and we're looking at that. What was it? A spotless lamb that was a, a prophecy of Christ that would remove, the, the death angel would pass over. So God takes on our humanity, our fallen humanity, our Adamic nature. He enters in to mankind, and he restores that nature. This is, this is, and <laughs> he takes on our actual human existence, laden with sin and guilt, our humanity diseased in mind and soul, in its estrangement and alienation from the creator. He takes that on. How many remember that alienation? Being separate, feeling that distance because of our sin, because we could say, I am not God. I do not under, I am sinless, I am fallen. Jesus came in and, and God the Father and Son, the Holy Spirit, all in agreement, came into mankind to restore that. To heal our diseased mind, our soul, our alienation from the, create, from the Creator. Now, this is a doctrine found everywhere in the early church. This is found everywhere from the earliest beginning. This, what I just spoke of, of that hypostatic union of God becoming flesh and, and man and joining with us for this purpose is not something new. But we must understand that to fully understand that God took on God in his eternity, came into mankind for you and me and joined with us and is forever joined with us. He will never, Jesus will never not be. He is still joined with us. In his hands and in his feet still show the marks that were put into his flesh. And we will always see that. Point two. The death of Christ on the cross, cross was our death. The death of Christ on the cross was our death. Now we need to really get a hold of this. He entered into our sin. We, what do we know? The, the word says the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life. So if he entered into our sin, the wages of sin, he went into mankind, the Adamic nature, the fall. He went into that. Death and brokenness. He entered into that. Sin, death, and brokenness. He entered into our fallen man. 
He breathed his last in order to take it all upon himself and redeem us from it. He entered into it, put it on the earth suit. When he went to the cross, he put on the sin of the world. It was laid on him. And that sin was punished at the cross. Another way to say that is that he took my life. By coming into your flesh and my flesh, he took our lives, our sinless lives. As Romans 5 would say, while we were yet sinners, Christ came. He took our sinful lives and they went to the cross. He took those on and they were punished at the cross. His crucifixion was our crucifixion. I don't know too many people who thought of it like that, but that's the reality. And it happened 2,000 years ago. It happened. That's past tense. Before I even came into being, it happened. All time in, is measured by that act. B.C., before Christ, A.D., it just went out of my head, uh, day of the Lord, in the, in the year of the Lord. Now they, they try to change that. They want to take Christ out of it. It's before common existence or after. Well, what's the measurement? What separates it? It's Jesus. It's him coming onto the planet. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit put it on human flesh and blood, going to a cross and resurrecting. That is what measures all of time, and it will never change. He put on our death, our sin, our brokenness. And it went to the cross. Our life, our sinful life went to the cross with him and was crucified. And you have to see it that way. Because if you don't see that that way, you won't see a resurrected life. Now listen to this. He went back through the guilt-laden irreversibility of time into the very beginning in such a way as to undo the past and undo our sin and guilt. That's how it can help wrap your mind around it. He went back through the guilt-laden irreversibility of time into the very beginning in such a way as to undo the past and undo our sin and guilt. He went back and did what Adam failed to do, became the second Adam, and he lived that life out sinlessly and perfectly. Hallelujah. And he did that in place, what Adam failed to do, what you failed to do, what I failed to do, what the world is always going to fail to do, he did it, and he went back, and it's like, relived Adam's life, and he relived your life, and he relived my life, and all those sins were crucified at the cross, and now you're going to say, well, then, Pastor Steve, does that mean we're all saved? No. The provision has already been made for the whole world, though, and the world to come. That has happened. It is finished. We will never put Christ back up on the cross again for any of our sins because he already did it. He already paid the price. He already redeemed mankind 2,000 years ago. So then what does our salvation look like? Salvation is when we come to that understanding of what he has already done for us. When our eye, the eyes of, as, as Paul would say, the eyes of our understanding would be enlightened, it would be opened. That we understand that God came into flesh and blood and took on humanity and was sinless and spotless and went to the cross for you and for me. And then we place our trust in what he already has done. And he'll never have to do it again. And we'll never have to do it because he's done it for us. I hope you understand this. Anything outside of that is false. God crucifies, dies our death. God crucified, not just Jesus. I want you to understand, this isn't just Jesus. It's they are one, the Father, Son, the prayer that he's praying. God, I pray they would understand that, that they would be one like we are one. It's not this angry father taking his son and appeasing they're in unity, in one, and so much love with us that they take on our flesh and go to a cross and take on the sin of the world and pay the price. That's a loving God. God crucified dies our death, descends into the chasm of our alienation from him in order to effect atonement. What is atonement? 
It's redeemed. It's paid in full. He's paid the price. And he descended into that chasm of our alienation from him. We all know when we're, and when before Christ, we sinned, we were alienated from God. The sin separated us. And when we understand that, oh my Lord, he has already paid for it. He paid, put, he lived that life out perfectly for me. We come to that understanding and we joyfully receive salvation. And yeah, I'm going to go there for just a second. I don't, I don't see the Son and the Father being separated. I don't see the Son and the Father being separated when Jesus is on the cross because they're one. What I do see, and, and I know some would say, well, what do you, explain to me then, Pastor Steve, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because Jesus, for the first time, is in the human form. He's a 100% human being man feels what sin is like. He feels what sin is like. He sees that, oh my gosh, I feel that sin. I feel that guilt. I feel that shame. I feel the separation. But God's never left you. Even when we sin, he's never left us. He never turned his back on us. He didn't turn his back on the son. Jesus felt the weight of sin and shame and expressed it. You can send your questions and messages how I'm wrong to www. I'm just teasing. <laughs> I could be wrong. You guys, here's the thing. You know, I could be wrong about some of this stuff. We all could be. I don't believe I am, but I'm going to stand on the I'm going to stand on the truth that what Jesus was praying, that his prayers are always answered. He's praying that they're going to be one like like his father and son are one. That's why I'm using this passage. I believe his prayers are answered. He never experienced that. So what am I saying? Yeah, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all went to that chasm. They all went to the cross. They all resurrected. They're never separated. They're always one. And if we're going to get in real big trouble when we separate the Trinity. Now, they are specific individuals, but they're one, and they'll never not be one. Just like Jesus will always be 100% God, and he will always be 100% man. Anytime you change that, you're wrong. We got problems. That's where cults and all kinds of crazy things come out. Now I'm going to get sidetracked. We got back into this. Praise the Lord. Now you've heard me give a lot of talk. Now I want you to hear some scripture. Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. Look at why he came. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Isaiah 53, 5 says, But he was pierced for our rebellion. Crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. Church, that's good news. That is him putting on our flesh. Prophesied, mind you, 700 years before it happened. And we're going to take communion today. I forgot to remind you, if you haven't get, gotten your communion stuff ready, get some juice. If you don't have grape juice, use orange juice. If you, if you don't have uh, unleavened bread, grab some bread. It's going to be all right. I promise you, it's going to be all right. But we're going to take communion today in light of that. And I'm going to read all of Isaiah 53. Still talking about the death of Christ on the cross was our death. This is the act where God gives himself. This is so awesome. God gives himself, his all, in the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. For our redemption and our justification. Redemption, what does that mean? Redeemed. Paid in full, full account paid, justified, means just as if you've never sinned. How can that be? The only way it could be is because he put our life and lived that out, took our sinful life, and it was crucified on the cross and gave us his sinless life. That's how we're justified. That's how we can stand before God and he can see us as if we've never sinned because he sees our life. The life I'm living out now is the life that Christ already lived. That should get you excited. I am living that life out. When, he, when, when the Father looks at my life, he sees the perfect, spotless Lamb of God's life being lived out through me. That will mess with your head. But I will tell you what, when you begin to believe that and understand that, that will change how you live. That's, a, that's called resurrection life. Resurrection life. 
This is where, in this act, the death of Christ on the cross, this is where God reveals he loves us more than he loves himself. And in his sovereignty, it will never change. This is where God shows us, I love you more than I love myself. And in my, it will never change. It will never change. That's what Jesus' death on the cross did for us. And that's what our death is. It's that realization that God loves us and revealed that he loved us more than we'll ever know or understand. And it's never going to change. John chapter 19, verse 28 through 30. This is Jesus' last moments on the cross. It says, Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. His mission, God's mission, Christ dying on the cross, was finally coming to an end, was being finished. And it says, and to fulfill scripture, he said, I am thirsty. A jar of sour wine was sitting there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put it on a hyssop branch, and held it up to his lips. When Jesus had tasted it, he said, it is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. That means paid in full. Paid in full. The price for your sin and shame and the price for the, my sin and shame, the price of the world's sin, shame, and guilt was paid in full. It is finished. Point three. His resurrection is our resurrection. Praise God. This is where God incarnate penetrates into death, robbing its power, manifesting his lordship over life and death, and demonstrates his unlimited power of all living and non-living. This is when God incarnate penetrates into death, and, and, and disease, and sickness, and pain, and brokenness, and he robs it of its power. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your power? There is no sting anymore. There is no fear anymore. God has robbed it. That is awesome. Did you know God could rob? We need to rob it. He manifests his lordship over life and death. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me, though they were dead, yet shall they live. Unlimited power of all living and, and non-living. This is what Paul writes about. We see these truths that I'm speaking so evident. And you will see this so evident as you go back and read through Scripture. Romans 8, verses 10 and 11 says, this is Paul speaking. He had that revel revel revelation, easy for me to say. <laughs> he had that revelation that... Jesus was his life, that Jesus' death was his death, that Jesus' resurrection was his resurrection. And this is what Paul preaches. Romans 8, 10 through 11 says, And Christ lives within you. So even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life. Now, what's the Spirit? The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ living in us in that agency. Jesus was bone of our bone, flesh of our flesh, a human physical being. Christ lives in us through the agency of the transcendent Holy Spirit. So the Spirit gives you life because you have been made right with God. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead. Listen to this. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, He will give life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living within you. He is resurrected. Resurrection power says it plain as day. Resurrected Christ lives in us. That's a glorious day, church. That's victory. That means the victory that when that stone rolled away and he came out is our victory. That resurrected power lives inside of us. And it's not just a theology. It's a person and his name is Jesus. Bear with me. In the resurrection of Christ, God has manifested the measureless extent of his power to share with us, to the uttermost, our punishment and condemnation. Did you hear me? He shared with us, to the uttermost, our punishment and condemnation in order to lift us up to share with him in his divine life. <laughs> 
Oh, my Lord. Talk about flipping it. He shared with us in our brokenness, our sinfulness, the, the, the separation he shared in that so that we can share in his divine life. That is, that is good news. We can share in his divine life and light, delivering us from the power of darkness and translating us into his kingdom. That's resurrection life. Translating us from darkness to light, from out of his kingdom to into his kingdom. You know how? Because Christ is the kingdom. Jesus is the fulfillment of the kingdom. When you go through and we went through the Sermon on the Mount, you see everything that he's talking about in him. And that kingdom is in us. Praise God. So talking about his resurrection and our resurrection, church, church, I want to ask you a question. Is your stone rolled away? Is your stone rolled away? If his resurrection is your resurrection, is your stone rolled away? You're saying, what are you saying, Pastor Steve? I'm saying if you are not living this out and believing that it is Christ living in you, who is the hope of glory, your life being lived out from Christ, and you're still relying on the law and the wages of sin and death and that law, your stone is still rolled in front of the grave. You need to come out. Come out of the grave. Come into freedom. Freedom from the law. We don't no longer have to measure, well, was I good? Did, did I not do enough? Did, that life was already lived and crucified on the cross, and there's a resurrected life, which is Christ's life, lived perfectly, that we live from now. you got to get this. Come out of the grave. Come out of the past. Come out of the darkness. Come into life. Resurrection life, where there is no stain of sin. And you're going, you're going crazy, Pastor Steve. Yes, I am. There has not been anything changed my life more radically in the last few years than understanding these truths that I'm telling you. And the board says, you know a tree by its fruit. Well, I can tell you what, my fruit is better now than it's ever been. You can see life in my tree and not a withered branch. We're not attached to the law of sin and death any longer. We're set free from the law of sin and death. Praise the Lord. Colossians chapter 3. I wish I could go through all the verses because, man, I tell you what, I studied a bunch from this week. It's all through the, it's all through the word. Colossians chapter 3, 1 through 4. Since you've been raised to new life. Since in light of that, I wish, I wish we could go back. If you can, when you get done, go back and read Colossians 1. You want to see what Jesus had. What I'm talking about is being one in the Father, one in the Son, one in the Holy Spirit. Go read Colossians 1. I wish I could. But in light of Colossians 1, since you've been raised to new life with Christ, set your sight. Did you see that? Have been. That's past tense. You've been raised to new life with Christ. Set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor and glory's right hand. Guess what, church? Right now, even though I'm here right now, I'm also seated with him in glory. That's mind-blowing. That's a reality. If he is in me and I am in him, then that's a fact too. And yes, someday we're going to rule and reign with him. But he is in me and I am in him. We either believe that or we don't. Think about those things, verse 2. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, do you get that? Our old life's dead. And now Christ, who is your life? My life now is Christ. That's what Paul's saying. Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the world. Isn't that what Jesus prayed? That the world will know us, that the world would see him through us. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will shine in all his glory. Woo! We can shine in all his glory. Man, that is good news. Let me explain some more of this. His resurrection is our resurrection. God and man... The hyperstatic union in the person of Jesus Christ has forever chosen to exercise his power and sovereignty for us and our salvation. That is beautiful. I'm going to say it again. God and man in the person of Jesus Christ has forever chosen to exercise his power and sovereignty for us and our salvation. His salvation, his resurrection is our resurrection. That is amazing. Why? Because his life was our life. 
His death was our death. His resurrection is our resurrection. Jesus Christ in person is the kingdom of God in action. Jesus Christ in person is the kingdom of God in action. So if Jesus Christ lives inside of us and we are letting that life live out of us, we then are the kingdom of God in action. That's the purpose. In a nutshell, Jesus literally is like, tells his disciples, I must go. I have to go. And they were all broken and distraught. He goes, I must go so the comforter can come. Jesus, knowing that the Holy Spirit and him are one, just like the Father and him are one, says, I got to go because I have taken on flesh and blood. I'm limited to this time-space deal. But the Holy Spirit is unlimited, and he's transcendent, and he can live in every single one of you, making each one of us the purpose to be like little Christs running around the planet. Can you imagine? That's what he says, greater works you should do. Man, I should hope so. Millions of little Jesuses running around this planet. And I'm not being sacrilegious. I'm saying that's the reality of that resurrected life inside of us. We are inhabiting and living our life now, our old life crucified, our new life, living Christ out of us, who is the hope of glory. There's no hope of glory in this guy, but Christ in me is the hope of glory to the world. That's why Paul said in Galatians chapter 2, 20 and 21, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet, not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, <laughs> I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Man, that's beautiful. That is the truth that Paul understood. And then look at the next verse. He says, I do not frustrate the grace of God. If righteousness came by the law, then Christ died in vain. Is the, is the stone rolled away? Is that stone of the law rolled away? Because if it's not, then you're, you're still trying to appease God. You're still trying to redeem yourself. You're still trying to live this life holy and perfect outside of what Christ has done for you. And that is frustrating the grace of God. If you're trying to live that way, then Christ, oh, he died in vain. And he did not die in vain. He accomplished every single purpose that he came to the earth to accomplish. And it's accomplished through us now. Praise God. The theologian I've been reading says it this way. His name's T.F. Torrance. He says, we are united to Christ who is bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh and participate in the risen humanity of Christ so that we are bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. Did you get it? We are united to Christ who is bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh and we participate in the risen humanity of Christ so that we are bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. Now that's a glorious day. That's a good day, church. He is in us and we are in him. This is not a new doctrine. Now the resurrection life through us, it's very important. It's not just a theological stance. But our theology must be right if we're going to live it out correctly. Amen? Amen. Now there's the living it out part. The Apostle Paul stressed that when Christ died on the cross, he was crucified with him. That means Paul was saying, I was crucified with him, which we just read. When Christ rose from the dead, Paul believed he rose with him. So it was not his life he lived anymore, but that of Christ who lived in him. And that is the same for us. We must view our life that way if we're ever going to live a victorious life through Christ. And guess what? The only way you can ever have a victorious life is living it through Christ. Everyone should have their hand up saying amen. We've proven that. Now let's take it a next step forward. Once a believer has captured this truth, he realizes that all he does must present a proper view of the Son of God. 
Once we understand this, we understand that everything we do must present a proper view of the Son of God. That means we are living testaments that what the world sees, if, they, if we are truly Christ living out of us in the world, we are responsible for how the world views Christ. That should really get your attention. That it is our responsibility of reaching the world, not in our strength, it's our responsibility of reaching the world through him. We'll never reach the world through him. We'll never accomplish the Great Commission in ourselves. It will only come through him, through his life in us. Colossians chapter 1, verse 27 through 29 says, For God wanted them to know that the riches and glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too. Jesus is all-inclusive. All-inclusive. Doesn't matter if you're Jew, you're Gentile, you're male, you're female. Doesn't matter. There's, there's no exclusion. It says, and this is the secret. For God wanted them to know that the riches and glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too. Now pay attention when he says, and this is the secret. Don't we always want to know what's the secret? So what's the secret? How do you do that? Like, it sounds good, but how do you... Paul says, here's the secret. Let me let you in on the secret. You ready? Christ lives in you. Here's the secret. Christ lives in you. He says, this gives you assurance of sharing his glory. That's good news. Verse 28. So we tell others about Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all the wisdom God has given us. Whose wisdom? His wisdom, the divine's wisdom that lives inside of us. That's what we give. Remember when he says, don't worry about if you stand before someone that you have to give an account or you're being persecuted. I will give you the words that need to be said in that time. That's Christ living in us and through us. I don't know about you, but I don't want to rely on my words. So we tell others about Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all the wisdom God has given us. We want to present them to God perfect in their relationship with Christ. Now, let me explain something. If we do not have a proper theology of Christ's life being our life, Christ's death being our death, Christ's resurrection being our resurrection, we will not ever be able to present God to those who we are giving hope to God perfectly if we don't understand it perfectly and we're not living it out. And the only way to live it out perfectly is not in ourselves. It's in Christ. Amen? So we want to present them to God perfect in their relationship to Christ. That's why I, this is Paul, that's why I work and struggle so hard depending on Christ's mighty power that works within me. Depending on Christ's mighty power that works within me. That is amazing. That is the crux, church. That, this whole last section is why we need to have a right theology on Christ living in us, Christ dying, our death being his death, his death being our death, his resurrection being our resurrection, so we can live it out, so others can see it and glorify our God and come to him. We are his ambassadors. We are his representatives. The purpose is that they will see Christ in us and be their hope. But if we're fearful slaves and we don't understand and the stone hasn't been rolled away in our life, we're still bound by whatever the things are that are binding us and we haven't come out from that victorious, they're going to see you and they're going to see me and they're not going to want to have anything to do with the Father. I'm going to get ready. If you guys have your communion elements, please get ready. Um, I'm going to read Isaiah 53. We're going to do non-traditional communion today. And uh, I want to give you a, a new, or maybe renew, probably a better word, a renewed sense of what we're doing during communion. And I'm going to read a passage of scripture that when Jesus declared that, that he was, he expected and he taught in John 6, that they were to live off of him. They were to, he was to be their flesh, their source, their bread, the bread of life, the bread of heaven that came down, just like manna. When he told them, you're to live this new life, from me. You're to feed on me. They left him. They said, what? This guy has flipped his lid. He's lost his mind. We're supposed to eat him and drink his blood. They lost it. And you're going, well, so what are you saying, Pastor Steve? I'm saying what Jesus is saying. 
He said, you cannot live, you cannot do this life feeding on anything else but me. I am your source. I am the bread of life. You must eat my flesh. And when he first said, they were like, wait a minute, which we're going to read it. Wait a minute. They started grumbling and complaining. What is he saying? And Jesus didn't back off that mark. He didn't back off that statement. He took it to the next step. He's like, oh, you're really struggling with that. Well, let me explain it even further. You also have to drink my blood. Is he saying that we were to be cannibals? No. Is he saying that in order for us to live this new life, we are going to have to feed and allow his life to live in us. We're going to feed on his life and it's going to live out of us. Yes. And that is what communion represents or it should represent. It's not something that we just look back and go, well, Jesus died for our sins. It's, it should be that I am receiving every single day, every single day that I draw breath, I'm receiving his breath. Every single day that I get into the word, I am receiving my nourishment. Every single day that I get into prayer, I, his blood is flowing through me. I am, I am receiving his life so that I can live it out. Amen? I hope you get it. <laughs> so I'm going to read Isaiah 53 and this, this, just the whole passage. I just want you to see what Jesus did and his union with us. And then I'm going to lead you through communion. Isaiah 53, this is in the New Living Translation. It might sound a little different. Who has believed our message? Now remember, this is 700 years before Jesus actually does it. Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot. Like a root in dry ground, there was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance. Nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected. A man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God. A punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet, the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before his shears, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was, shut, was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone. But he was buried like a criminal and he was put in a rich man's grave. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible. For many to be counted righteous for he will bear all their sins. I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels. And we were those rebels. See, he has been given the honor of a victorious soldier. We read in, in Revelation that there's John saw the revelation, and, and before he was able to see it, 
there was a great cry. There was a seal, and, and no one could open it. No one could open the seal. No one could open up the books. And they said, and, the, and he began to weep. And the angel said, don't cry. The lion of the king of Judah can open the seal. And instantly, you would think you would see a picture of a lion, but the picture is of a sacrificed lamb that had been slaughtered. And Jesus is the only one, <laughs> the victorious one, to open the seals. And that opens up our future and our hope and our joyful hope and our precious hope, which is sealed and, and sovereignly placed and identified in Christ. Let me get some. Hopefully you got your bread and the cup. I'm going to read one more passage and then we're going to receive communion. If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 6. I'm not going to read all of it, but I want you to read enough that you understand why I'm saying what I'm saying about communion and living our life through Christ. John 6, 47, this is Jesus, and he says, I tell you the truth. Anyone who believes has eternal life. Believes what? what? Everything I just laid out. That's how we get it, by putting our faith and trust in what he's already done. Yes, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, but they all died. Anyone who eats the bread from heaven, however, will never die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will live forever. And this bread which I will offer so that the world may live is my flesh, which is his life. Then the people began arguing with each other about what he meant. How can this man give us his flesh to eat, they asked. So, so Jesus being God, and he doesn't backtrack like most of us today would. He goes, full, he goes even stronger in this. That should tell us that he really wants us to understand this. They begin to argue, and then they ask him. So Jesus says again, verse 53, he says again, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life within you. But anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise that person at the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Isn't this the prayer that he prayed? They remain in me, and I remain in them. I live because of anyone or I live because of the living Father who sent me. In the same way, anyone who feeds on me will live because of me. I am the true bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will not die as your ancestors did. Even though they ate the manna, they will live, but we will live forever. Now, I hope you hear me. I am not saying, and we're not all of a sudden becoming Catholic, but I am saying that this is what Jesus was showing when he took the bread and he took the cup at Passover. It wasn't, this was a new thing. This wasn't, they weren't just celebrating Passover. This was a new covenant that he said was sealed in my blood. And this new covenant is not the law of sin and death any longer. It's the law of life, the resurrection life that Jesus died, lived for us, died for us, resurrected for us. And in order for us to live this new life going forward, we must take his body, his life, his blood, his life force, and feed on it daily. That is how we will live his life out, church. Communion should no longer ever be the same. I pray that it isn't. I pray from this point forward, every time we take communion, and maybe some of you have, and I, I haven't, I can say I haven't been really taking communion like this. This is my first time. I'm doing it with you. That, Lord, this is your life. And we have said that we pronounce your death till we come, that what you've done was enough. And I've been saying that, but I need to truly understand that in order for me to live this life out, I have to feed on your life. 
And what is feeding on his life? It's the word of God. He is the word. We got to feed on that. We got to feed on every word that, that proceeds out of the mouth of the Father when we pray. We have to feed on that. We have to live, let his life be in us so it can come out of us and that we would be in him. Truly the hope of glory. Amen. So if you have your bread, Take your bread, and I'm going to pray over this bread. Father, we thank you. Oh, God, how we thank you for taking on our flesh and blood, for becoming one with us, Father. Son, Holy Spirit, we thank you for doing that. Jesus, we thank you for becoming, being all God and all man, being the creator and the creature, being before time and after time and being time. Lord, we thank you for doing that for us. Lord, we thank you for, for living that life out perfectly, flawlessly, sinlessly, and taking our sin and having it punished at the cross. We thank you. And Lord, with this bread, we receive your life and your body, which was beaten and bruised for our iniquity, for our shame, for our guilt. And this body that said that by your stripes, we are healed. We receive that right now in the name above all names, in the name of Jesus. Amen. We thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord. We thank you, Jesus. We thank you for your life. And Jesus, we take the cup, which represents your blood, that cleanses us from all sin. We thank you for shedding your blood. For your word declared that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. We thank you for being 100% man and shedding your blood for us so that we could be restored and whole and well. We thank you, Lord, for coming into us and us being able to come into you by what you've done for us. We thank you, Jesus. We thank you for your blood. We thank you for the power, Lord, that is in us because of your blood. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for the protection and the covering that comes from your blood. We thank you, Lord, for spilling it for us, God. For me, we thank you for proving your love, that you love your, you love your creation. You love us more than you love yourself. Your word said, a greater love hath no man than this, that one would lay down his life for his friends. We thank you, Jesus. Lord, we, we say that your blood was enough. We agree there's nothing else that needs to be done. Your blood will never need to be spilled again. What you did, you've done once and for all. And it is truly finished and it is completed. We thank you for resurrecting, God, for conquering death, hell, and the grave. And for us to be having death, hell, and the grave conquered in us. Lord, we thank you. We thank you, Jesus. And we receive your cup. Oh, praise your name, Lord. We praise your name, Lord. Praise your name, Lord. Praise your name, Lord. Church, I just want to share, we've never had an Easter like this, where we've not been together. And the prayer that Jesus prayed, I want to read it again. I am not praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one, just as I and I, you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you, and may they be in us, so that the world will believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me, so they may be one as we are one. I am in them, and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me, and that you love them as much as you love me. Even though we're not together in the same room, this prayer is being fulfilled today. This prayer is being answered today. I can tell you what, I have never felt so close and so in unity and oneness uh, with my brothers and sisters in Christ, even though there, many of them are not in the room today because of this prayer and this revelation and studying this out this week. And, and yes, the church is not the building. We are the church and we are in unity. And his prayer is being answered. Amen. He goes on and says, Father, I want those whom you have given me to be with me where I am. That's our hope, church. Then they can see all the glory you gave me because you love me even before the world began. Oh, righteous Father, the world does not know you, but I do. And these disciples know you sent me. Church, we know the Father now. Why? Because 
Jesus knows the Father, and he lives inside of us. So this is our, we know him. I have revealed you to them, and I will continue to do so. Then your love for me will be in them, and I will be in them. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. If there's anyone today that's listened to this message, you've heard the message, and you could say, I, I have not been. He is not one with me. I am not one in him. That can happen very easily. It wasn't, it wasn't pain-free, and it wasn't, it wasn't simple for Jesus. It was extremely excruciating, painful. He put on mankind's flesh and blood in an earth suit. He came to this earth and lived out your life perfectly so that you could be free. In order for you to be saved, in order for that to, be, to happen, is you have to come to that understanding. If you understand what I laid out, then you put your faith and your trust in what he has already done for you. And if you do that, the word says that you would be saved. So then you confess with your mouth. You say, Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit, I believe that you went to the cross and paid the price for my sins on that cross 2,000 years ago. And I believe you resurrected so that I'd have a resurrection life to live from. And if you put your faith and your trust in that, the Bible said that you would be saved. And if you've done that, we would love to know about it. And if today's been the first day, or, or maybe you just haven't, you hadn't rolled the stone all the way away. And today you've rolled the stone away that I want to I know about that. And the church wants to know about that. We want to be able to bless you, help you with maybe get, if you don't have a Bible or some resources. So if that's been you today, please let us know. Put a, put a comment on the Facebook or say, yes, that was me, Pastor. Um, and we'll give you a little bit of time to do that. So if, if you would need some, uh, some Bibles or any, any help like that, please let us know. You can leave a message there or you can call us at the church or go to our website. Amen. Happy Easter, church. Just know that uh, Denison family loves you and the, the pastoral staff loves you and hope you have a great rest of your Easter. Amen? Amen.